Well, hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Highways Podcast for March 13th, 2022. I'm Julie Peterson, and it is so great to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope that God meets you in beautiful and tangible ways today. In today's podcast, we're going to set aside some time to take communion. So if you'd like to partake in that, please take a moment now to find a cracker or something to eat and some juice or something to drink for later. Today, we're continuing on in our teaching series entitled Stations of the Cross. This, our Lenten teaching series, is named after a centuries-old tradition designed to enable folks to take a spiritual pilgrimage tracing Christ's passion without making a literal pilgrimage to Jerusalem. As we approach Easter Sunday, we pilgrim beside Jesus, companioning with him from his last supper to his last moments as he breathes his last breath on the cross. And... As part of this, we companion with him through progressive loneliness, isolation, abandonment, and suffering. As we began our series, we pulled up a seat at a table in a large upper room in which Jesus partakes his last supper with his disciples, including one whom he knows will soon betray him. And last week, we knelt with Jesus in a dark garden as his disciples, who, while being physically near, were emotionally and spiritually far as Jesus prayed and wrestled in agony and surrender to his Father's will. Today, we remain in Gethsemane and continue the narrative of the night in the garden from last week. And rather than kneeling, we're standing. We're standing beside Jesus as he stands with resolve and readiness and resolutely faces the cross. So let's dive on in. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible or Bible app, please make your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, starting in verse 2. Let's read. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So here again, we're with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives, just beyond the Kidron Valley, in this special place where he went to be in communion with and receive strength from his Father. Now, this special place wasn't a secret. Jesus had brought his disciples there in the past, which was just one way that Jesus opened himself up and allowed others in throughout his life and his spiritual and missional journey. And we see in the Gospel of John that Jesus often met at Gethsemane with his disciples in the sacred space, in this shared sacred space. And so, it's with bitter irony that Judas, his disciple, someone with whom he had a close relationship, that Judas knew where Jesus would be that night, having been entrusted with the knowledge of this place. Judas not only knew that this would be a place where Jesus could be found, but he also knew that this would be a place at which Jesus would be away from a supportive and potentially defending crowd. And Jesus knew that Judas knew. Jesus wasn't hiding from him, and this is because Jesus wasn't hiding from the cross. Rather, he resolutely faces and presses on toward it. Christ's very presence in an easy-to-find location allows Judas to find him that night. 
And in this way, Christ being present in an easy-to-find location is, in a sense, his first step toward the cross. Now, Judas comes with a detachment of soldiers. A detachment is a military term which suggests that there may have been a group of as many as 300 to 600 soldiers. That's a whole lot of soldiers, considering they came to arrest a single man, a, a man whose life was marked by love and nonviolence. Well, considering all this, what we see here might seem like a pretty outsized response. Now, it could be that the Pharisees and scribes were concerned about a possible insurrection, but irregardless, Jesus' adversaries wanted zero chance of failure, zero chance of not taking Jesus into custody. However, this turns out to be an unfounded concern, as Jesus puts up no fight and no resistance, despite the fact that this surprise attack is of no surprise to Jesus, even though he knows they're coming. And even though he knows what will happen after he's taken into custody, Jesus always knew. In the short space of the first 11 verses of John chapter 13, which is the passage that tees up and extends through Jesus washing his disciples' feet during the Last Supper, we see this powerful and poignant and moving truth that is Jesus' awareness of God's redemptive and sacrificial plan and his role in it. Verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. My friends, Jesus knew, and John wants us to know it. He uses repetition, this literary device that was commonly used by authors in the ancient Near East for emphasis. It's clear that while Judas made his betrayal plans in secret, that this was no secret to Jesus, and that he was fully aware of the circumstances that would need to pass in order for God's redemptive plan to come to fulfillment. Jesus was fully aware of his coming betrayal, arrest, scourging, and crucifixion. Jesus knew. Returning to the garden and continuing on in our passage, we read, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Jesus approaches his adversaries and asks them who they want, and in doing so, accomplishes several things. He establishes that his enemies are there for him and not his disciples, and in this way provides safety for his followers. And he clearly establishes the fulfillment of his prophetic prayer found a chapter prior during which he prays, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And also, 
By asking his adversaries who they want, Jesus creates this pathway to declare his divine identity. Jesus asks, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. Jesus identifies himself by saying, I am he. The Greek, the Greek phrase used here, ego, aimi, can also be translated as I am. Here, Jesus identifies himself in a way that recalls the way God referred to himself when speaking to Moses from a burning bush while sending him to bring his people out of Egypt. After Moses plays out the scenario in which the Israelites ask who sent them, God responds, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In the garden that night, following Jesus identifying himself as I am he or I am, following Jesus saying this the first time, remember he says this twice, well upon hearing this the soldiers draw back and fall to the ground, whether this was perhaps in response to being in the midst of Christ's presence or perhaps in fear. We see here that Jesus is in control of the situation. In the Gospel according to Luke, we see that Jesus even heals an adversary, Malchus, who is the high priest's servant and the person whose ear Peter cuts off in an unnecessary attempt to defend Jesus that night. Jesus' enemies conspired with Judas so that they could find, identify, and arrest him. But neither they nor his betrayer Judas were in control of the unfolding events that night. Jesus had absolute command over the situation. Jesus allows himself to be found, identified, and arrested. Jesus enters into each of these things, even though he knows what's on the other side. Ultimately, Jesus would lay down his own life. It wouldn't be taken from him. What we see here is that Jesus was not only aware of God's redemptive plan, Jesus Christ was absolutely in control, and in this way, he faces and walks towards the cross. So, Jesus knew, and Jesus was in control. Now, this is in sharp contrast to another story of betrayal whose year mark is actually coming right up in two days on March 15th. Or, as the ancient Romans would say, on the Ides of March. The words Ides referring to the middle of the month. What betrayal comes to mind that occurred on the Ides of March? Yep. On March 15th, 44 BC, Julius Caesar was murdered by a group of Roman senators. Among them, apparent close friend and ally, Marcus Junius Brutus. It's this classic story of loyalty, power, politics, murder, and yes, betrayal. Now, there were as many as 60 conspirators involved in this assassination during which Caesar was stabbed 23 times, resulting in his death. Yet, while there were many involved, one participant stands out in lore, and that's Brutus. This story of betrayal is rendered by William Shakespeare in his tragedy, The Life and Death of Julius Caesar. The dramatic climax of the narrative occurs during this assassination and specifically during the seminal moment in which Caesar, mortally wounded, sees his friend among his betrayers and utters his final words, et tu, Brute, or you too, Brutus. 
Shakespeare portrays Caesar having had this trusted relationship with Brutus and really political success, and he essentially has no idea what's coming. I mean, in his account, Caesar did receive some warnings, the most famous of which comes from a soothsayer who ominously extended the caution to beware the Ides of March. But truly, Caesar, in that fateful moment, was completely unaware of the surprise attack that awaited him. He had no idea. Now, Shakespeare took some artistic liberties in writing his version of the story. For example, historians don't believe that the Ides of March warning is historical, nor do they believe that Caesar actually said et tu brute. I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine him being able to say much of anything after being stabbed multiple times. But anyways, as a world-class storyteller, Shakespeare saw the pathos or deep appeal to emotion that comes from the betrayal of one's closest friend and ally. And so he architects this narrative that crescendos in this iconic scene where Caesar's heart is broken at the sight of his close friend on that fateful day in March, at the realization of this deep betrayal, at the realization of misplaced trust. Dr. Brene Brown who's a social scientist, professor, and author, uses a metaphor to illustrate what happens when we experience betrayal and when we experience acts that engender trust. This metaphor is a marble jar. It's based on a practice that's sometimes used by teachers to recognize and encourage desired behavior in the classroom. Maybe you've seen it, or maybe you've even used it yourself if you facilitated leading a group of kids. It goes like this. There's a jar in the classroom where, if kids make good choices, the teacher adds marbles. And if they're making poor choices, the teacher takes out marbles. And then if and when the jar gets filled, there's a class celebration. And so, while considering each of the relationships of our lives, we can consider each of them as being represented as its own marble jar. When we experience betrayal, the marbles are removed. Dr. Brown says, and I quote, When we think about betrayal in terms of the marble jar metaphor, most of us think of someone we trust doing something so terrible that it forces us to grab the jar and dump out every single marble. Terrible acts which result in dumping out the jar could look like infidelity in a marriage or a confidant sharing a sacred secret intended to be kept between two people. Or, in the case of Julius Caesar, it could look like a good friend conspiring with about 60 people to plan and carry out an assassination. But more often, at least in terms of volume or frequency, betrayal tends to look like the smaller but still very much hurtful stuff that erodes relationships over time. Maybe you put yourself out there and ask for help from a friend and get no response or get rejected. Out goes a marble. Or maybe you feel judged by someone who doesn't understand you or your circumstance. Out goes a marble. On the other hand, we can also put marbles in the jar. We do this when someone does something that builds our trust. Marbles can be added when we do things like giving without expecting anything in return. Maybe someone brings over a meal and says they're praying for you while you're going through something really rough and you've barely got enough in the tank to make it through the day. Marbles can also be added by standing up for someone, perhaps a 
friend advocates for you in a time that you've been mistreated, say, socially or at work. Marvels can even be added when help is asked for and generosity is received. When someone humbles themselves and brings down the veneer of self-sufficiency and asks for and or receives your support, that, that builds trust. There are lots of ways people can earn marbles in the relationship jar that we hold for them. In fact, Dr. Brown explains that trust is built in micro-moments, as these seemingly small acts collect in our consciousness, people with full marble jars earn our trust, and trust strengthens relationships. That's because relationships are built on trust. And, as can be seen in another garden, the Garden of Eden, God created humanity to be in relationship. To be in relationship with Him and to be in relationship with one another. Before humans decided not to trust God's definition of good and evil, before they saw and took what they perceived to be good, before that moment, the garden in Genesis was the very picture of perfect, trusting relationships. This is what God intends, and this is what God desires. So, on the one hand, Relationships are built on trust, and we're created to be in relationships, and therefore, we're created to trust others. On the other hand, betrayal, which is misplaced trust, is deeply hurtful. And so there's this tension that we sit in. I mean, who knows? What if, like Caesar, we have no idea and there's a Brutus in our midst, or... Okay, maybe we're not so concerned about the scenario of literally getting stabbed in the back, but what if that figurative scenario is a very real potential? What if being disappointed by someone who's painfully disappointed us in the past or presenting ourselves as flawed to someone we look up to? What if something like that causes fear or timidity? Maybe it's just easier to have empty jars and not bother putting in marbles because without trusting relationships and their associated risks, there are no marbles to painfully take out. This tension is real, and the space can be really, really hard to sit in. But thankfully, God sits with us in that, and we have the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance and discernment. God can and does work through trusted friends, family, spiritual directors, and therapists, and his still small voice to help us navigate relational decision-making in our day-to-day lives. Healthy relational, physical, and emotional boundaries are vitally important, and God sits with us in the tension of how and when to extend that. And God sits with us when our trust has been misplaced and we experience betrayal. God doesn't leave us alone. And he doesn't want us to walk life's journey alone, guarded with empty marble jars. Jesus descended to earth so that we, who are imperfect people, might be in a restored relationship with our perfect God and be in restored relationships with one another. Restored relationship with God and restored relationships with others, this is a picture of the kingdom. God works through relationships. 
as we navigate new existing and potential relationships with others and make decisions around extending trust in order for God's kingdom to be made known both within us as well as through us, when we step out and extend trust, we can know we're not out there alone. We can know that God is unfailingly with us and that God is unfailingly for us. We can know. And we can know that God wants us to have an abiding relationship with him. He loves us unconditionally and desires that we come to him with our authentic selves. We can come to him with our joy, our anger, our hope, our lament, our praise, and our brokenness. We can come to him exactly as we are. God desires that we open ourselves up and let him in. Revelations 3.20 tells us, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If we open the door to God, he will enter in 100% of the time. And that's because God loves us more than we could ever imagine. We can rest in this truth. Come what may, we can know. And so, may the Spirit guide us as we, God's precious and beloved, seek to live like Jesus and open ourselves up and let others in in order for his kingdom to be made known on earth as it is in heaven. And now, I'd like to invite you to participate in an act of remembrance that Jesus established just before he went to Gethsemane, as he was gathered with his disciples in a large upper room. There, he gave new meaning to two elements of the Passover meal, the bread, which represents his broken body, and the cup, which represents a new covenant in his blood poured out. In 1 Corinthians 11, Starting verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Highway family, let's eat the bread and remember. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Now let us drink from the cup and remember. Dear Almighty and glorious God, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. And thank you, Father God, that he willingly and lovingly undertook this journey of isolation and betrayal and suffering 
God, that he resolutely took this journey so that we could have something we could never have on our own. A perfect and restored relationship with you. And a perfect and restored relationship with one another. God, thank you for the ways that you work in and through relationships. I pray that your love would be known by others through our relationships with them. Move us and meet us in wisdom and give us your eyes and heart as we seek to do that well. Thank you, Father, for our relationship with you. May we remember that we are your beloved in this moment and as we leave this place. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.